Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the Naval Institute. Today is Friday, the, December, the 2nd of December, and this episode of the show is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Dental Coverage. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year, and plans start as low as $20 a month. Learn more at bcbsfepdental.com. Okay, so welcome to the show. It's the beginning of December, and as we've been doing for the last couple of months, our first podcast of the month is to highlight uh, articles in the uh, in the newest issue of Proceedings. And the December issue went live uh, two days ago, and it's uh, it's a great issue, and it's out now. And my uh, co-host today is my deputy, the uh, deputy editor in chief of Proceedings, retired Navy Captain Bill Bray. Bill, great to see you. Hey, great to see you. Great to be here. Yeah, we're going to highlight it. Uh, you know, we'd love to talk for hours about the full uh, issue, you know, which every issue is full of just uh, amazing content written by mostly active duty Navy, Marine Corps and, uh, and Coast Guard authors. Uh, we, we can't hit everything, but we're going to highlight uh, a couple of articles that we think are of, uh, you know, maybe particularly salient right now, given things that are happening in the world. So, Bill, happy Friday. Uh, why don't you start off? Okay, sure. Um, I'll start out with um, Robert McEwen's article, um, Assessing Military Capability uh, More Than Just Counting Guns. Uh, this was the third prize winner of the Naval Intelligence Essay Contest. <clears throat> Robert is a retired intelligence professional who has worked for uh, the Navy, the Army, um, and, and uh, currently lives in uh, Australia. Um, Robert's um, main point here is that, once again, that the uh, the most recent war, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion in Ukraine, has exposed um, how intelligence agencies, not just in the United States, but other places, uh, overvalue um, technology um, and equipment um, and, and numbers of, of equipment um, and undervalue the human aspect of war fighting. Um, <clears throat> nobody, uh, very few people anyway, besides the Ukrainians themselves, um, thought they would put up such a fight. Uh, not only they're putting up a fight, they seem to be in some places winning uh, the battle against Russia. And Robert goes back in time in this article and uh, back to probably early in his career and talks about um, some of the assessments that were produced uh, over the years on the Soviet military by the Defense Intelligence Agency um, and how it, um, it it undervalued, again, undervalued the human element. And then we had, uh, in the late 80s, we had uh, some defectors come out of, um, out of the Soviet Union, Soviet Air Force, others, um, that um, gave some pretty uh, sobering assessments of the... Um, the morale of the, the average Soviet um, airman or, or soldier. Uh, so it's really a, a, a well done uh, article and uh, worth uh, certainly worth any intelligence professional's uh, time to read uh, to, to factor in, but it, it, more generally anybody in the national security business. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, something I put in my editor's page to sort of wrapping up 2022. And, you know, that was the takeaway or, you know, the quote from, uh, Napoleon, that uh, the the moral is to the physical as three is to one, right? That, you know, there's just so much, so many intangible things that have to be counted or you have to try to account for 
when you're trying to uh, assess an adversary's capability. You know, there's capability, there's intent, and then there's the human element of combat. And, you know, the Ukrainians are certainly showing that uh, in spades, uh, and, and the Russians are showing it in, in the opposite sense. And I think uh, uh, McCowan, uh, his article is, is just terrific. He, he, he definitely uh, earned, earned his pay there with the third prize winner of the Naval Intelligence Essay Contest. It's, it's a terrific essay. Uh, yeah, yeah, he also talks about um, previous uh, then-Soviet um, external uh, military operations like the one in 1956 into uh, Hungary, into Budapest. And he talks about how many of the Soviet soldiers in that didn't even know they were in Hungary. They thought they were in, in Germany fighting Nazis. They, uh, the Russians tended to keep it you know, quiet about what they were doing. And uh, they were confused. And we, we saw some of that in Ukraine, right? Some of the Soviets that were, oh, I'm sorry, the Russians uh, soldiers that were captured um, said, we thought we were just exercising, you know, on the other side of the border. We had no idea we were going to even do this. <clears throat> yeah, no, 100 percent. I, I think it was a pretty large percentage of especially the conscript force you know, that was assembled uh, down in, in uh, southwest Russia and in Belarus that thought they were just there for a big exercise. And then they were told to, you know, step off the line of departure. And I, I think many of them didn't really realize that they were crossing, you know, the, the international border into Ukraine until they, you know, started either their units started firing or they started being fired against. Yeah. Um, so I want to just highlight Austere Roberto is one of our most uh, consistent listeners, I guess, uh, biggest fans, I, I may, might call him. Um, but he, he, points out uh, an article written by Joel Holwit, uh, who's been on the podcast recently and has written a number of things, you know, the Navy isn't ready for paperless. And that was a, just a great short commentary about, you know, how few computers there are. You know, Joel's the CEO of the Toledo, which is going through an extensive yard period. Um, but, you know, how, how few computers are available to the officers uh, on his submarine, but also, you know, the, the crew members and trying to go paperless uh, is is something that the Navy's been promising to do for quite some time, but you know, just still is not there. And I think he, uh, he Joel, even mentioned the fact that there's, you know, on the on the the computers on his uh, or laptops on his submarine, you know, still uh, running a version of Microsoft Windows from 2013 that is no longer supported by Microsoft. It might be supported by, you know, Navy NMCI, but it's not supported by Microsoft. So. Uh, you know, the Navy just really has to, you know, speed up and do a better job of moving into the, uh, the paperless uh, environment. And in order to do that, they've got to have more workstations, more computers uh, and better updated systems, you know, that, that uh, for sailors and officers to do the work if they expect them to do it uh, paperless. So I, lo I love that one, too. Um, one of the first ones I wanted to highlight is a piece by uh, two German naval officers and we get a lot of great content, uh, not just in our International Navy's issue every year, which used to be March, but is now in May. Uh, but throughout the year, we get a lot of stuff uh, coming from our allies and partners. And in this particular case, uh, the article is ca called NATO Navies Must Get the Balance Right. And the authors are Captain Sasha Rakwitz and Commander Mark Baumert, German Navy, uh, I plan to have them on the podcast. I just reached out to them a few days ago and asked them if they're available later this month. So I don't want to uh, uh, spoil the whole article, but 
you know, these two have read, they've read Wayne Hughes, they've read Mahan, they've studied uh, the, the Falkland, uh, Falk, the, you know, the British Navy, Argentine Navy, Falklands campaign. Uh, they're looking at what's happening in uh, Russia, Ukraine, the Black Sea these days. Uh, they're examining some of the weaknesses of NATO navies uh, and making some really strong recommendations uh, for better training, for uh, more multi-domain operations, including cyber and, and space domain operations. Uh, they're making the point that uh, training has to be much more realistic uh, and that you know, NATO also has to balance what the U.S. Navy has been challenged to balance, which is the you know, the capability, the uh, force structure uh, versus forward deployed, being being forward deployed. And they're not saying that, you know, NATO navies can give up uh, the operations that they've been doing, for example, anti-piracy operations off the west coast of, or east coast of Africa or Gulf of Guinea operations or, you know, other things that, uh, you know, uh, CENTCOM uh, operations in conjunction with U.S. Navy uh, carrier strike groups, but they've got to do a better job of finding the balance. So it's a it's a particularly good piece by a couple of uh, NATO partners, uh, German Navy officers. So I like that one a lot. Um, what was what was another one of your uh, better articles or best articles, favorite articles from this issue? Yeah, I think the uh, the American Sea Power Project uh, edition. Um, it. Um, uh, article this month uh, by Jake Beber on cyber power is a key element of sea power uh, is really good and it's I think it's really timely uh, for those that, that maybe not be following along the Navy is going through some real tough uh, discussions with Congress and some introspection on its cyber forces um, long story short the Congress is not satisfied that the Navy is investing enough in cyber uh, capability, particularly um, expertise, um, that it's gotten to the point where the Congress is <clears throat> almost demanding the Navy um, uh, carve out a separate cyber uh, warfare um, uh, community. Um, and um, um, there's some some in the Navy who think that, you know, it's not worth the investment. There's a cyber capability um, in the joint force that we can rely on to support the Navy. Um, Jake uh, doesn't ha hold that view. He think that's a dangerous uh, assumption um, that the Navy needs its own cyber capability, needs its own expertise, and, and, and people that are really focused on uh, cyber issues in the naval, uh, in the maritime realm. Um, so <clears throat> we'll see where this ends up uh, over the next few months. Um, but uh, I would encourage people who are interested in that debate to read Jake, uh, Jake's article. Yeah, I agree. That's a, a terrific one. We also had Tyson Medor's uh, article on cyber back in, uh, I think it was the September issue. Tyson's a cyber warfare engineer, also a former naval intelligence officer. He's on our editorial board. Those two pieces taken together, I think, are, are um, a great contribution to the com conversation about how just how critical uh, and what kind of roles uh, does cyber power, cyber warfare play in the in the maritime domain, I remember uh, one of the things that that Tyson brought out that I thought was uh, particularly uh, salient was the point that uh, you know the the Navy right now thinks about protecting its own networks, but we don't think at all about protecting commercial maritime networks. 
and and there's a, a tremendous amount of threat there. And Jake builds on that as well by talking about how the Chinese have built, um, uh, you know, I guess put their tendrils into overseas shipyards and overseas port facilities. You know, in the news recently, there was the whole thing about uh, was it the, the the port of Hamburg that a Chinese uh, company wanted to essentially buy that port and operate that port. And there was a big discussion in uh, in Germany about whether that was a national security threat. And Jake, you know, brings that out that hey, when when American ships go anywhere in the world nowadays, they're likely to pull into ports not just if they're visiting Hong Kong, but if they're visiting even our NATO allies and, and uh, South Asian partners, et cetera, that they might be pulling into a port that's got extensive uh, Chinese government tendrils into it. And, and therefore, um, that, that's a constant surveillance threat and probably a constant point of access threat. So Jake brings that point out very nicely. I'm going to try to get uh, Jake and, and Tyson to come on the show at some point to, uh, together. I think they they would together be a uh, a, a terrific conversation. Yeah, definitely. Um, another one that, uh, that that I particularly liked is the uh, article by Lieutenant Hoey Keegan Hoey that's called that's titled "Repair Time is the Critical Variable." It starts off: the United States will not win a protracted war without a way to fix ships quickly and send them back to the fight. Uh, it was interesting. We had this article before we went to um, the, the, the uh, Naval Submarine League event at the beginning of November over in uh, Crystal City. Uh, that uh, conversation at the Navy Sub League was so much of those two days were focused on the industrial capacity of the United States, the shipbuilding and the submarine industrial capacity. Uh, but Lieutenant Hoey, you know, talks about that not just from a shipbuilding or submarine building capacity, but a repair capacity. And if you look at the times when, you know, for example, uh, the coal bombing in Aden, um, uh, or the um, uh, what was the other, the the, the Fitzgerald um, having to be repaired, or the McCain having to be repaired uh, more recently in 2017. You know, those are one-offs, right? Those are times when the United States had not, you know, they had combat damage in the case of the coal or, or collision damage extensive in the case of uh, McCain and, uh, and Fitzgerald. Um, and, and, you know, that, those, both those things caused, or all three of those ships caused perturbations in the, the, um, uh, the deployment cycle, the readiness cycle of the Navy, um, and then getting them fixed cost, you know, significant amount of money. And it wasn't there, there was no threat in getting them back to an American port to rebuild the ship. I think Pascagoula was the case for both uh, Cole, if I'm right, and, and Fitzgerald and McCain was repaired in, uh, you know, over in Yokosuka. But, um, you know, in, in, a, in a war, particularly if a war, uh, you know, in the Western Pacific were to go more than weeks, you know, there would likely be significant numbers of ships that would have to be repaired and could not just be replaced by brand new ships that were, you know, churning out. This isn't 1939, 40, 41, when the U.S. has got, you know, multiple shipyards uh, already starting to churn out ships for war. Uh, you know, our capacity is uh, is pretty limited. I, I want to read a, a, a point from that. So uh, uh, Lieutenant Hoey points out, uh, shipyard facilities. In 1981, the Office of Management and Budget started terminating subsidies for commercial shipbuilding undertaken during the Reagan administration 
This reflected the trend away from government market interference. Since then, the domestic commercial shipbuilding market has all but collapsed. In the first 10 years following the end of subsidies, the United States saw shipbuilding workers drop from 120,000 to 72,000 and 110 shipbuilders down to 60. This trend has continued today. It is estimated that only nine shipyards in the United States can construct or repair large commercial and naval ships. So I, I would contend, as he does, that that's a national security problem, consideration, weakness, you know, limitation for certain. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we all think back to World War II and what happened. Uh, of course, that was a unique moment in American history, world history, and uh, and so it's 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 tricky to compare eras and some of the di major differences. Not among those differences are that ships are. They look the same to the average person walking down the street, maybe, but <clears throat> a ship in, uh, built today and a ship built in 1940 are vastly different from a C4I perspective. And the complexity of the ship uh, topside from a standpoint of, um, you know, again, C4, C5 ISR uh, weapons. And so it's not just repairing the hulls in the in the you know the infrastructure of the ship it's it's making the ship able to fight again and and that is i mean i don't know i'm that's not my area of expertise but it, it's it's i think it's fanciful to think that you could do that in uh, in a few weeks for a ship that takes major damage from say a missile hit or something um even if you had oh, the computers, you have to have the, the the you'd have to obviously the capacity to put it in the shipyard you have to have the uh, the worker expertise, the kind of high end technical work uh, workforce to be able to do that um, quickly. Yeah, and and uh, do we have the spares right? Do we have the ready spares for the missiles, for the radars, for the combat systems, for all those things that pull all that information together uh, to enable you to you know find, fix, track, and and target inbound missiles, uh, you know, send T lands downrange, et cetera. Yeah, it's a lot more complex than, as you point out, you know, the uh, a naval gun system and a couple of torpedo tubes that were on a World War II era destroyer, right? We're talking, we're talking variable depth sonar. We're talking combat systems. We're talking, you know, SM2s, SM6s, uh, you know, T lamb targeting systems. All those things, very very complex stuff. Good point. Good point. Um, Brian O'Rourke, who was with us last month, uh, unfortunately has COVID today, so he didn't. He was not able to join us. Our, our senior editor of proceedings, uh, he wanted us to highlight uh, the need to know column, uh, which is a, a terrific piece. Um, a couple things here. One was the uh, just it, it recaps the uh, the unmanned surface vessels that the Ukrainian Navy used to attack the Russian Navy in the port of. Um, Sevastopol. And uh, so there's some, some great stuff here. Some of it comes from H.I. Um, Sutton, uh, who is a uh, U.S. Naval Institute or USNI news reporter. Um, but it, you know, just some really interesting stuff happening as, you know, people say, hey, what, what's going on and what, what are the lessons learned from the, the Ukraine war? Uh, and this is for, for navies, at least. This is, uh, this is I think, um, incredibly important development and just shows how, uh, uh, you know, thinking on their feet, adapting and, and quickly moving to new technologies and, and trying things. And, you know, it, uh, it, it had a pretty significant impact on the Russian Navy. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
Um, the, other, the other thing I like about this, if you, if Heather would just bring that back for a second. Yes. Uh, so um, First Lieutenant Kayla Haas, U.S. Marine Corps, is uh, very good at doing, I don't know what you would call these, whiteboards um, or, uh, you know, sort of putting, putting very complex things uh, in simplified terms, right? And so she's taken the, the new national defense strategy and, and essentially uh, uh, simplified it down and, and highlighted the most important things from the new national defense strategy uh, about the security environment, the approaches, the, the strategic guidance that's guiding it, the importance of allies and partnerships, what the defense priorities are, uh, what are the, the different um, uh, terminology, I guess, or, or goals in terms of force planning, lethal, sustainable, resilient, survival, agile, responsible. You know, sometimes it's, it's difficult to wade through a national defense strategy or a national security strategy. Uh, and I, I highlight that uh, Lieutenant Haas has just done a great job. If you want to print this from proceedings or make a copy or cut it out and, you know, put it on your desk or put it above your desk. If you're, if you're looking for a quick, easy, uh, approachable uh, version of the new national defense strategy, she's done a terrific job with this. And I believe uh, integrated deterrence uh, for one will be a topic of discussion at defense forum Washington on Tuesday, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, yes. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. Right. So uh, for folks in the national capital area, you can come in person. Uh, so our annual Defense Forum Washington, which is one of the Naval Institute's biggest annual uh, events and conferences, is at the Spy Museum uh, on Tuesday, the 6th of December. Uh, it starts at nine o'clock, goes to about 1230 or so. Um, and uh, it will also be available virtual. You can attend online. Uh, and I think we've got hundreds of people uh, signed up already to attend both in person and virtually. And uh, the, the, the topic of that day's event is going to be about uh, the integrated defense strategy. Integrated deterrence is the term that, uh, that the Pentagon is using. And a lot of people are criticizing that. Uh, so I know one of the one of the speakers that day is going to be uh, Representative Mike Gallagher uh, from Wisconsin. He's a Republican, uh, but he's also a former Marine, and he's been pretty outspoken on uh, naval issues, on shipbuilding issues, and uh, he's been outspoken on this. His criticism is it's you know PowerPoint deep. Uh, so the one of the uh, deputy what is it Assistant Secretaries of States for our Secretary of Defense's for strategy is going to be describing that, um, that integrated deterrence strategy. What is it? How's it working? What are the, you know, the sticking points? So it should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, definitely. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Austere Roberto says, pictures do help monkeys like me. Me too. I love pictures. Pictures. <laughs> picture does a, you know, picture says a thousand words. And speaking of pictures, um, so we, I don't think we've got, got them already loaded up to mention here, but the December issue includes the winners and runners up from this year's Naval Institute photo contest. So, uh, lots of great images from the photo contest this year, uh, about what do we got? Eight, 12 pages, uh, in the, uh, uh, in the issue, uh, here, I'll just hold up a, a couple of the shots there. Um. But the, uh, the photo contest uh, winners are always published in the December issue. And so that's uh, if you're if you're a big fan of uh, naval uh, photography, maritime photography, take a check it out. Um, what other articles did you have on your mind, Bill? 
Well, I, I wanted to mention uh, the Ask and Answer column this month um, for um, for our you know listeners. This column has been running now um, more than three years. I think this is the, actually the fiftieth uh, iteration of Ask and Answered since we started in twenty nineteen. Um, it's been, I think, pretty popular and uh, with our readers, um, we get some really interesting answers from all all, all, all kinds of uh, subscribers. And um, this one is about uh, Amer the American military cemeteries overseas. Um, the American Battle Monuments Commission uh, runs, operates, and maintains 26 American military cemeteries overseas. Most are in Europe, but not all. There's actually the first one ever um, was in Mexico City uh, for the Mexican-American War. Um, and uh, this is different than the VA. The VA runs Arlington National Cemetery. It runs the Punchbowl uh, National Cemetery of the Pacific out in Hawaii. Um, so these are only cemeteries. NBC is only cemeteries on foreign soil. Um, <clears throat> And so we got some really good, interesting answers of people that have visited some or or many, and what was their most uh, interesting visit, the most uh, moving moment. Um, and it is very moving. And I've been to six of them in my life, and uh, five in Europe and one in North Africa. And I would encourage anybody who has uh, is anywhere near one of these cemeteries on vacation or uh, traveling for work, if you have an hour or two, go to one of these cemeteries. It is an amazing experience uh, walking the rows in St. Normandy. This is not this is not like a normal cemetery uh, in your hometown. Everybody, you know, all these crosses, the ages are 18, 18, 19, 20, 18. And it's it's just an amazing uh, experience. The, the, the nations that host them do a fantastic job of maintaining it. Um, so uh, um, really, I think that was uh, what I wanted to say about, um, about that column. Well, I'll, I'll say something additional about the column because you, uh, it was your idea a couple of years ago to do this. And uh, it's always in the last page. Um, so if you open up the proceedings and you, you, you've got cover three and four here and the last page of the magazine is asked and answered. We've been running this, what, two and a half years now? More than three, uh, September. Three. 19 was our first one. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's very well read. Uh, they're they're fun. It's quick. It's easy. It's engaging. Uh, interesting topics. The one coming up for the January issue is what is the most what interesting, storied, uh, dangerous sea and anchor detail you ever participated in, right? So we should get some amazing stories, uh, you know, for that one. And if you uh, if you haven't if you're watching this or listening to this and you haven't um, you know, contributed to asked and answered is very easy to do. Uh, you can email 50 words. So it's, you don't have to write 500 words. We're talking 50 words uh, and, and send it in to asked and answered all one word asked and answered at usni.org as an email. Uh, Bill puts that column together. We get just some amazing sea stories. We get amazing personal poignant stories uh, I love that column every month. It's been a terrific addition to the magazine. And uh, and that one about uh, American cemeteries overseas is uh, probably one of the best so far. Yeah, good point. Uh, I want to highlight um, something called combat fleets. So we have every month we have a one pager 
Uh, it's called Combat Fleets. It's written by Eric Wertheim, who's the author of uh, Combat Fleets. Uh, the last uh, time that we published that is a very thick compendium uh, desktop reference. Uh, it's also available online, uh, the Combat Fleets book. But but Eric, he used to do this um, a few years ago. He would pick, you know, sort of three platforms, four platforms a year. And we asked him to go a little bit more in depth and just pick one and to focus, particularly the last couple of years, to focus on the Chinese Navy, the Russian Navy, and, and the most significant allied and partner navies. Uh, and occasionally including a, you know, a new or important uh, U.S. platform that perhaps not everybody in the U.S. Navy was uh, all that aware of, or hadn't been thinking about, or, or you know didn't know the details on. But this month, it's uh, Japan's advanced lithium-ion batteries, uh, and so this uh, this one he talks about the uh, Taige, if I, I hope I'm pronouncing that cr uh, correct, the Japan's new Taige class of diesel-electric submarines uh, that have lithium-ion batteries rather than lead-acid type batteries. Uh, and he points out that lithium battery advantages have been well known for generations and the batteries are a common element in consumer technology. So definitely in your in your cell phone. Uh, their onboard use in submarines, however, remains extremely limited because of the inherent danger poised, posed by hydrogen gas and intense heat that can be released by batteries in the event of malfunction and fire. But the Japanese self-defense force and its industrial base have learned to manage these challenges and they've built uh, a couple of submarines that, um, that you know, and, and a submarine class that more coming that are in, incredibly capable, uh, probably the most, uh, you know, highly advanced in terms of uh, operational capability, uh, underwater speed and endurance, um, uh, you know, of any submarine in the world. So check that out. Check out uh, Eric Wertheim's Combat Fleets every month. It's a quick, you know, five-minute read. It's a one-pager. Uh, you know, it, it's just it will clue you in. Particularly, you know, every month he, the stuff that he's written about the Chinese Navy, new platforms, uh, but also our allies and partners, uh, new ships and submarines and aircraft have been uh, particularly helpful. So I love that. Brian O'Rourke has joined us in the chat room and he says, lithium and water, boom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As I, I, I think, didn't, um, what was the, uh, the Boeing aircraft? Uh, I want to say it was not the P-8, it's the, um, uh, their newest airliner some years ago, uh, there, was a, there was an issue with a fire, a lithium ion battery fire. The Dreamer. Um, what's that? Dreamliner, this that's right, the 787, the Dreamliner. Yeah, so they had lithium ion batteries, or they do. And uh, yeah, Boeing faced that uh, issue as well. And there was a, a, an issue with the fire on board, and but they had to had to get around that, right? The, uh, the Dreamliner. Uh, okay, so uh, other thoughts, we should uh, probably wrap this up shortly. But any, anything else uh, on your mind? Um, you know, next week is Army Navy week. Um, uh, Army Navy game back in Philadelphia next Saturday, so there'll be a lot of activity around the yard um, uh, going on next week. As uh, for those who are uh, either academy grads or familiar with with that, uh, that that's a big deal around here. <clears throat> yeah, it definitely is. It, you know, followed immediately by final exams and you know mids running home for the Christmas <laughs> holiday break, and so yeah, it's an exciting time. Um, you know, I'll, I'll double down on a couple of upcoming events for us. Uh, so first, we already mentioned Defense Forum Washington, but tune in on 
uh, Tuesday, 6th December, either come in person to the Spy Museum. It's a great venue downtown Washington. We've got a couple members of Congress who play critical roles in uh, the, you know, the, the House Armed Services Committee, or the uh, subcommittees that deal with uh, naval and maritime issues. Um, we're going to be talking about integrated deterrence. What is it? What are the shortcomings uh, of it so far? You know, where's the, the you know the Pentagon going with that new strategy? Uh, following that, uh, coming up in January, we'll have a booth at Surface Navy Association, their 35th annual symposium. So we're looking forward to being at SNA as we always are. We'll have a booth. We'll probably do some episodes of the podcast there. So if you go to SNA, please stop by and see us. We're going to have some T-shirts to give out. We're going to have some books to give out. We'll make some members and uh, looking forward to that. And then, you know, the biggest event that the Naval Institute does every year is West. And so this year, West will be in San Diego. I think the dates are 14, 15, 16 uh, February at the convention center, free and open to all active duty folks. Uh, and if you're a member of the Naval Institute and you're not on active duty anymore, you get a big discount for being a member of the Naval Institute coming to West. But we'll have the Sea Service uh, Chiefs, so the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the CNO, and the Commandant of the Coast Guard will all be there. I think the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, is uh, his his address is the kickoff. He'll, he'll be the kickoff speaker on day one. Uh, should be a great event. Uh, and so, you know, put that on your calendar, 14, 15, 16, February if you're on the West Coast, if you're in San Diego, uh, please come out and see us. Yeah. Um, also, I, I think we should mention that you know, we're working on the January issue right now. Um, and uh, next year is our 150th uh, anniversary of the Naval Institute. So starting in January, readers are going to see an extra eight pages in each magazine. Uh, with um, it's a her There'll be a heritage section in each, um, in each issue. Uh, around a theme, some theme that transcends generations, transcends eras that has been uh, written on and uh, debated in the forum and proceedings uh, over time. So <clears throat> more to uh, more to follow. I don't want to spoil the surprise for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and, and so for our, well, all of our members and all of our subscribers, there's an extra eight pages uh, in, in every issue in 2023. So a normal issue of proceedings most months is 96 pages. So every month will be 104 pages, except for the March issue, which is our Naval Review, will be whatever it is, plus eight pages of heritage section uh, with that great, some of those great history pieces uh, from our archives. That's a great reminder. And the other thing that our, our listeners and our viewers will see is that uh, for so far, since the April issue of 2022, which was the first issue that we that we published after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've had the Ukraine flag on the top left corner of the cover of proceedings uh, every month since then. Um, and I just drafted last uh, yesterday and Pete sent it uh, a letter to the Ukrainian ambassador uh, in Washington with uh, with all the covers that we've had uh, with the Ukrainian flag on the cover uh, so far. Uh, we will be Transitioning, however, for our 150th year, 2023, the Ukrainian flag will go away on the cover, not because we don't, you know, we're stopping our support for Ukraine, but really because we're going to be putting the emblem, our, our uh, logo for our 150th, our sesquicentennial anniversary uh, on the cover. So you'll see that on the top left cover of proceedings every month uh, for 2023. But yes, there'll be an extra eight page section of uh, history, heritage, Things you know, gr great 
tidbits. And if you, if you want to see what that might look like in the September issue, Dennis Clift did a, um, a look back on naval aviation, 100 years of carrier aviation, where he pulled out some of the better uh, articles and, and um, highlighted some of the you know key points in those aviation articles for the past century. That's the kind of thing we'll be doing. And Dennis Clift, who's 85 years old, uh, still working full time on our staff. Um, he is uh, just the you know the genius emeritus uh, you know at the Naval Institute. He is a he's an amazing human being. And uh, Dennis was the editor in chief of proceedings actually early in his career. Uh, for in the in the early 1960s, he was uh, editor in chief for a couple of years before he went to work for numerous administrations, White Houses, uh, you know, national security advisor to uh, Vice President Mondale, etc. Really, really interesting guy. Uh, but Dennis is the guy who knows where all the all the um, skeletons are buried in proceedings over the years, and he's been digging out those tidbits. And uh, so he's the, uh, the the guy behind those heritage sections uh, coming up and starting, as you said, in uh, January, which we're we're working on already. All right. Uh, well, I think that wraps it up. Uh, Brian says no word on whether Chesty uh, PFC Chesty will attend West. Fingers crossed. Is there a PFC Chesty? I don't know what he means. I don't know what he means either. I don't. But I'll be at West. So if there's a PFC Chesty, the the sixteenth, uh, hopefully I'll meet him. All right. And then uh, let's see. One last question. Azure Sentry says, any chance of articles on Navy seaplanes being dug up for those heritage sections? Ooh, that's a great point. Um, uh, I'll I'll mention that to Dennis. I I would imagine that there will be. Um, and I will point out, if you like seaplanes, we just published. Um, three, the three winners of the fiction contest, and they're published online right now. Uh, and the third prize winner is called Splash 12. Uh, and I, I don't want to give it away, but there's um, seaplanes play a significant role in the story. It's a great story. It's fiction. And the picture that we chose is a little bit of uh, back to the future because there were no, there are no uh, seaplanes in the U.S. Navy right now. We dug one up a Martin P6Y from the 1950s, and we modernized it and sort of fictionalized the picture, um, and that's the uh, uh, that's the um, uh, the image for that story. Splash 12. Go to our website. It's on the it's on the proceedings homepage, um, and it's the third prize in the uh, in the fiction contest. And Heather just threw that into the uh, the link of that into the chat window too. So. All right. Well, this was a great conversation. We could go on for, as I said, we could talk to, about the December issue for hours, but uh, we won't do that to you. You'll have to tune in, go to the website, read it, or get it in your mailbox, which uh, for our, our print members, our print subscribers, you should already have it uh, at home. Um, that wraps up another episode of the podcast brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Dental Coverage. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year, and plans start as low as $20 a month. Learn more at bcbsfepdental.com. If you enjoy the show, like us, subscribe to the channel, tell your friends, become a member at usni.org forward slash join. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.